0: Your Grace Bishop Ezekiel of Dervis, Your Grace Bishop Yakovos of Multipolis, Reverend Fathers, Ladies and Gentlemen, Welcome to the Greek Orthodox Parish of St. Estathios for this evening's information session on the proposed same sex marriage legislation. I take it that you would have all seen the program and the list of speakers. We will hear presentations from the Very Reverend Edmund Right Father Sevius Abbot of Padanus Monastery, who holds degrees in Law and Theology, Dr. Anna Dimitriou, who holds a PhD in Literary Critique and Cultural Identity from Deakin University, Uh, Mr. Nicholas Augustinos, who is a Senior Lecturer of Law at the University of Notre Dame in Sydney, and Mrs. Helen Magnus, who holds qualifications in teaching, over 10 years' experience in teaching. I would ask you just for practical practical purposes to switch off your mobile phones, if you haven't done so already, to silence silence or to turn them off uh, completely as we listen to each presentation. We'll then try to have a question and answer session at the end to address the questions you may wish to raise. As Grace mentioned, um, all speakers will be presenting their talks in both English, first English, uh, followed by Greek. So without any further delay, I would like to ask Father Sevios to take the microphone first and to address us with his presentation entitled, The Orthodox Church's Understanding of Marriage, Same-Sex Marriage, and Our Duty to Contribute to the National
1: Discussion. Your graces, Bishop Ezekiel of Hervis and Bishop Yakovos of Militopolis, Reverend Fathers, Brothers and Sisters in Christ. We are here this evening with the blessings of His Eminence, Archbishop Stylianos, who encouraged us to visit Melbourne to speak with you. It is very moving to see so many people here. Thank you for attending. Our purpose this evening is to talk with you about the proposed same-sex marriage legislation. Same-sex marriage is a topic that has recently polarised not only Australian society, but many countries around the world. In Australia there have been over a dozen parliamentary attempts to redefine marriage from being between one man and one woman to include unions between two men and two women. Now it seems the matter will be put to a public vote if the coalition government wins the next election. And already the gay lobby are gearing up an aggressive campaign to win the minds and the hearts of the Australian people. Leading up to the vote, without exaggeration, we are likely to experience one of the fiercest culture wars Australia has ever seen. For this reason, we need to be informed on what the Orthodox Church teaches about marriage, same-sex marriage, and the consequences for society should marriage be redefined. St. Anthony the Great said, a time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him saying, you are mad you are not like us. We are seeing the realisation of this prophecy in our times. Christians are accused of being homophobic, bigots and promoters of discrimination for teaching the Christian definition of marriage and for holding that a child has a right to both a father and a mother. For example, last week, The Catholic Archbishop of Tasmania was referred to the state's anti-discrimination commissioner for distributing information about marriage in Catholic schools. One might ask, where is the tolerance or the right to the freedom for freedom of speech that we are so known for in Australia? Christians are also being accused for being hurtful to children, for not encouraging those who have feelings of same-sex attraction to embrace homosexuality. Recently, in the state of Kentucky, following the approval of same-sex marriage, prison prison chaplains were prohibited from referring to homosexuality as sinful or from telling children in jail that they can change from being homosexual. Meanwhile, a radical shift in thinking about marriage is even affecting political parties. In August, the Labor Party decided that from 2019 and onwards, any member of the party who does not vote in favour of same-sex marriage will face automatic expulsion. Can you see the trend And where this is leading to, Christians are slowly being prohibited from expressing and living out their faith in the public square. Complicating matters even more is the extreme bias in the media. Traditional media outlets, social media and the politically correct public school system are dangerously indoctrinating the next generation, they put forward the idea that love knows no boundaries and therefore the definition of marriage should have no boundaries and should include two men and two women. Anyone who disagrees with this mantra faces unprecedented public bullying. Recently, SBS Channel 7 and 10 have all refused to play harmless ads that encouraged national debate around the consequences of same-sex marriage. This clearly shows that there is no balanced discussion. Instead, that gay marriage is the mechanism through which we will witness a brutal ideological cleansing that aims to bulldoze social change. And this will directly impact every sector of society, as you'll see later this evening, especially our right, which is taken for granted up until now, to live, think and speak as Christians in the public square. Marriage from an Orthodox Christian perspective, as we all know, is not founded only on love, nor is it... is it formed by what is deemed politically correct? The Orthodox Christian view is entirely dependent on certain divinely revealed truths that have emerged as God has manifested his truth to people. From the beginning of man's creation, God ordained that a man was to live with a woman so that they could help each other and for the human race to be multiplied. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. (laughs) Secondly, marriage in the Orthodox Church is a sacrament that has been instituted by God. According to the Apostle Paul, the union between a man and a woman in the sacrament of marriage reflects the union between Christ and his Church. Our Lord Jesus Christ taught, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and the two will become one flesh? As such, marriage is necessarily monogamous and heterosexual. Every such monogamous union exists to form a new reality of one flesh of a man and a woman. This can only involve a relationship based on gender complementarity. Thirdly, The love between husband and wife, even if imperfectly practised, constitutes what St. John Chrysostom called the small church, which ensures the spiritual and physical health and stability of the family in raising children. Whereas the proposed same-sex marriage construct is diametrically opposed to the Orthodox Church's understanding of Christian marriage. The Orthodox Church, not just in Australia, but worldwide, teaches directly and unmistakably that homosexual acts distort the natural purpose and function of the body. They have no procreative value. The scriptures and the saints of our church universally testify that the attraction between persons of the same gender is precluded because divine love cannot be expressed in intimacy between persons of the same gender. This is because it can never be complementary, it can never be unitive, it can never be life-creating, and it can never be life-enhancing in the way that God intended human relationships to be between a man and a woman. The church teaches that God does not make human beings homosexual but rather that human beings become subject to same-sex feelings and desires that are specifically sexual because of the fallen state in which humanity is born and lives. Furthermore, the Church teaches that to encourage people to accept such feelings as natural To act them out and to acknowledge them as marriage would be to encourage them to embrace the fallen state of mankind as natural and hence to undermine God's plan of salvation for each human person in the most tragic manner. As such, the only sexual relationship capable of leading one to growth in holiness before God remains the marital union between a man and a woman. The Church's ultimate concern is to speak the truth with love, compassion, and without judging the person who identifies as homosexual, but simultaneously to have the freedom and the right to witness these sacred truths to the Orthodox faithful and the wider Australian community without being prosecuted under anti-discrimination laws as is happening to the Catholic Archbishop in Tasmania and to many others overseas where same-sex marriage has been legislated. My dear friends, on many occasions we have heard Christians say that same-sex marriage will not affect us and that the Church and the state can go their separate ways. This is an incomplete understanding of the consequences of the proposed legislation and of our role as Christians on this issue. How can this not affect us? We do not live in a vacuum or in an isolated community cordoned off from the rest of society. Our ability to live as Christians is affected by the condition of society. The law shapes ideas and forms culture. To redefine marriage in law in a way that reduces it to emotions and same-sex unions is a direct attack on the family. It sends a message enshrined in law that there is nothing unique about male and female, husband and wife, father or mother, but rather that all are interchangeable and replaceable. It sends a message enshrined in law that it is acceptable for children to grow up without a mother or a father. If same-sex marriage is legislated, the greatest victims will be our children. Our children are formed by what they see, hear, and learn at school and in the media. If same-sex marriage becomes law, then that is what schools will have to teach. Already in Victoria, over 200 schools have accepted the dangerous Safe Schools program. Your children are being taught that homosexuality is a normal lifestyle option, and same-sex marriage is not even law yet. And Mrs. Helen Magdis will speak to us more about this this evening. My dear friend, friends, a lie does not become a truth and wrong does not become right and evil does not become good just because it is popular. Truth is truth. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. We have a duty to witness to the truth as a church and individually. Firstly, our bishops and clergy to stand in the front line and to witness for our people. A hireling sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Our Lord Jesus Christ characterized Christians as being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. What did St. John the Baptist do? With holy zeal, he defended real marriage and was imprisoned and beheaded for it. Were St. John alive today, he would be at the forefront of the grassroots movement opposing this social and political agenda. In a recent encyclical, our Archbishop formally called us to action for very serious reasons. He said, we're obliged to express in the strongest possible terms our objection to the enactment of such legislation that will assail the sacredness of the sacrament of marriage and the family. For this reason, we must all together cooperate like never before to help raise awareness of the consequences by speaking up at home, in the workplace in the parish, at university, at school. We must join the discussion in the public square and contribute to government policy. Use social media to spread the message. Sign up on the Speak Up for Marriage website. Read the articles and share them on Facebook. We must try to inspire fellow Christians to get involved and take action. We must endeavour to spread the teachings of our Orthodox faith on marriage and sexuality so that the truth which leads to salvation is proclaimed and preserved for future generations. Finally, our last goal is the most important and challenging. Unfortunately, as Christians, we have failed society. salt preserves light disperses darkness and grants life we need to reobtain these attributes and the only way to do this is for each of us to personally respond to our lord's life-giving message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand we are not asking others to repent we the christians need to repent starting today. We need to personally live out our Christian faith and the truth about marriage in our lives. Intellectual arguments are important, but people are moved more by the beauty of holiness. Yes, marriage is an invaluable social construct, but it is firstly a path to holiness. Simultaneously, we need to embrace this matter with sincere and humble Orthodox prayer. Unless we all respond, the social, political and religious landscape of our beautiful, unique and God-blessed Australia will greatly suffer. Thank you,
0: Father of Servios. We'll now move to, on to the next presenter, Dr. Anna Dimitriou. His presentation is titled, The Social Impact of the Proposed Same-Sex Marriage Legislation.
2: Your graces, reverend fathers, brothers and sisters in Christ, advocates for gender justice are framing their case in terms of equality, liberty and freedom, and they're using language and stories that are shrouding the complex issues such as the well-being of children Their push for acceptance of diversity is in fact an undefining of the family. Social scientists supporting this draw on research that promotes the idea that depression, anxiety and suicide amongst the LGBT communities would be lessened and they endorse this view through methodologically flawed research. We cannot pretend that all heterosexual marriages are ideal. However, it has been shown that the children in, do better when they live with their biological father and mother. It is, however, the subjective nature and the high political states that manipulates research through sample groups that are biased and they make unfair comparisons. Good science is based on open and vigorous debate. But when it comes to making truth claims, we have to question why we are not being given the time for this kind of debate and further research. When evidence, good evidence, is excluded, ignored or marginalised, we need to ask why. When people are speaking out against the proposed legislation, they are attacked on the basis that their research is flawed. We have, however, good evidence from Sarandakos, Salens, Renegas and Marx who refute the flawed methodology in the debates in um, promoting same-sex marriages. Sarandakos is an interesting case because his research was not animated by bias against LGBT communities. In fact, he had written a lot to support um, this kind of um, problems with people. His research, like all research, had its limitations. But what is interesting is that his in, his research was overlooked because it did not support the dominant sociological view. Mark, Renegus and Salins also made a compelling case this year at the US Supreme Court and they contested the validity of the no-harm thesis. Both researchers, Sarandakos and Renegus, used large random studies and compared children from same-sex couples with children living with both biological parents. Their studies clearly showed the unreliability of the evidence in the biased small study samples that compared children of same-sex couples with children living in strained households, either because of divorced parents or single-parent families. Such comparisons will skew the results to show that the children of same-sex Couples fare better. They point to the need for large random samples, further study, and long-time outcomes such as employment, financial stability, educational outcomes, and social stability. Such studies also indicate that the high incidence of depression, anxiety, and suicide do not rest solely upon heterosexist discrimination, since not everyone who suffers from discrimination has psychological problems. There are many other factors operating in the social environment that change a person's mental health, beyond merely discrimination and bigotry as the same-sex lobby are promoting. Furthermore, we need to look at the people chosen for study are often primed, and so the results will not reflect the real issues. We look at the subjects themselves, we find, especially the children, we find that no matter what a child may profess in an interview study, it's highly improbable that he or she will admit that they are unhappy. It is in the instinct of each child to protect their gay parent, and to put up a mask to hide the ambivalence that they themselves experience. And so so the results will not really reflect what they feel. It has been well documented through stories told by the children themselves who have grown up in same-sex households that they face similar challenges to children who become orphans because of abandonment, divorce, or death. And no matter how good the parenting of a homosexual couple, it is undeniable that when one parent is missing, there is an absence that remains an open wound. Every child has the natural desire to know the absent father and mother. And at some point in their life, especially when they themselves become parents in a heterosexual family, they note how much they missed out on and that's when the full loss hits them. They often go through a crisis themselves. Heather Barwick was raised well by her mother and her mother's same-sex partner and she said that the issue for many children in such families is not whether the parenting is good. She said it denies us something we need and long for while at the same time it tells us that we don't need what we normally crave. It also tells us we will be okay, but we're not. We're hurting. She, together with Kate Fowle, submitted a compelling brief this year to the Supreme Court in March 14, and they argued that children do better when they're raised by their biological mother and father because each brings a unique and irreplaceable gift to the family. Donor-conceived children are now more open about their experiences. About 40 years ago, the first anonymous donor clinics were established, resulting in 60,000 donor-conceived people, and it was a mandatory requirement that the donor's information remained um, anonymous. Sarah Dingles recently spoke about her struggle to find the identity of her biological father, And since the codes had been destroyed, she lost access to her medical and genetic history. Knowing that she has at least 20 half-brothers or sisters, she's afraid that at some point, two siblings may become intimate and have a child. She's angry, and she feels that she has been denied her birthright, which is to know her biological family. But the demoralizing question for her is that she was simply manufactured for the needs of her parent. In such cases, children are torn by loyalty to the parent who raised them and their ambivalence about their biological parent. And evidence from overseas indicates that voting for same-sex marriage will see an increased demand for donor conception and surrogacy. And this will raise complex psychosexual, moral and ethical dilemmas. Whose rights are being respected in same-sex families? Lesbian mothers often give their son the message that expressing this very natural desire for a father is out of the question, even unacceptable, because they are the type of mother who wants a same-sex partner. Therapists for children whose mothers divorce their father to live with a woman observe how the boys are very, very angry at their mother's lover. Several of the children react with brief experimentation with homosexuality, while many worry that they themselves will be homosexual. Barbara Eisfold in her paper Recreating Mother, shows problems in surrogate mothering for men in same-sex relationship. Nick, for example, was conceived for a male couple who hired a nanny to care for the boy. When Nick was two, the couple felt that the nanny had become too emotionally attached to the child, so she was fired. They hired another nanny who was replaced six six months later by a third. By the time Nick was four, he was um, suffering from profound psychological problems and he wanted to buy a mother. The therapist engaged to treat him writes, how do we explain why this child the son of a male couple, seemed to need to construct a woman, mother. How did such an idea enter his mind? What inspired the intensity on this subject? I ask you, could it be that little boys need mothers? These cases provide strong evidence that the parents' sexual needs take precedence over the children's natural need to know and to be known by their father and their mother. Children in same-sex couples are not able to adapt to family diversity as easily as the gay activists claim. It is clear even from the pro-gay sources that the pain felt by children is deeply personal and internal and is not caused solely by external discrimination or bigotry from Christians. Activists can change the laws. They can modify public opinion over time. They cannot redesign the hearts of children or restructure their fundamental needs. So despite what the media portrays, there are individuals within the LGBT communities who are openly voicing their opposition to same-sex marriage, describing it as a suboptimal environment in which to raise children, because there cannot be any procreation. Marriage is more than a contract. It is about partners extending themselves and putting their children's needs first, rather than prioritising adult needs over children's. Marriage is not meant to lead to a formation of new webs of relationships. Uh, It needs to to lead to a formation of new webs of relationships and it gives children role models of what it is to be a man and a woman. So in conclusion, the fundamental purpose of marriage is to engender respect for the transmission of human life and to care for the most vulnerable. Same-sex couples wanting children and a family usually achieve this through surrogacy. There are implications for the children who are donor-conceived. But there are also human rights issues, as in the case of third-world women being exploited to become surrogates for gay couples. Excluding same-sex couples from marriage is far bigger than a person's homosexual orientation, their gendered or agendered individuality or the worth of their relationship and their need to be socially accepted. Rather, the exclusion of their relationship is related to the fact that it is not procreative and it requires an adult-centred, reproductive decision that is not child-centred and not respectful of all parties.
0: Thank you, Dr Dimitriou. We will now move on to our next speaker, Mr Nicholas Augustinos. His presentation is titled The Proposed Same-Sex Marriage Legislation and the Impact on Religious Liberty and Other Legal Consequences.
3: Your Graces, Reverend Fathers, Brothers and Sisters in Christ. In preparation for this talk, I have been doing some research on the legal implications of legislating for same sex marriage in Australia. Tonight, I simply wish to share with you the fruit of the research that I have been able to do so far, because I believe it raises some important concerns for all of us as Orthodox Christians. Concerns which potentially affect our ability to freely express and act on our faith and especially our ability to freely express and act on our religious belief of what marriage truly is. A key argument of the proponents of same-sex marriage is that their suggested amendment to the definition of marriage in the Marriage Act will only affect the rights of those same-sex persons who wish to marry and will have no impact on the rights of anyone else. If one looks at the experience of persons overseas where same-sex marriage legislation has been enacted, however, questions arise as to whether this argument should be readily accepted. Let me share some examples with you from the United States where state legislation of same-sex marriage has impacted on the way businesses can operate. In the state of Colorado, cake makers, who on the grounds of religious and conscientious objection to same-sex marriage, declined to bake a cake celebrating such a wedding in Oregon, were held to have acted unlawfully. An anti-discrimination claim was brought against a bridal shop in New Jersey for refusing to sell a wedding dress to a lesbian bride. In Washington state, a florist who felt unable to supply flowers to a same-sex couple's wedding by reason of her strongly held religious convictions was prosecuted. In New Mexico, wedding photographers whose strong religious beliefs prevented them from photographing a same-sex wedding were found to be in breach of the New Mexico Human Rights Act. And in New York, a devout Catholic married couple who owned and controlled a corporate entity, Liberty Ridge Farm, which owned and controlled a farmland property in Albany, were prosecuted for declining a booking for a same-sex wedding. Let me stress, in each of these instances, the defendants were not discriminating against the complainants because of the fact that the complainants were gay or lesbian. Rather, the defendants were simply expressing and acting on their religious belief as to what marriage truly is, and they did not want by their services to validate what they, in accordance with their religious conscience, regarded as not being marriage? It's understandable to ask. But isn't there religious freedom in the United States? How were these defendants prosecuted and fined? Why were they expected by the courts to participate in certain activities or ceremonies that conflicted with their religious conscience. Now, in the course of my brief talk tonight, it's not possible for me to provide with you with a complete analysis of the legal principles from all of these cases. But to give you a flavour, I will briefly mention some of the comments which were made by Justice Richard C. Bosson in the case of the photographers in New Mexico. According to this judge... The photographer's refusal to do business with the same-sex couple in this case, no matter how religiously inspired, was an affront to the legal rights of that couple, namely the right granted to them under New Mexico law to engage in the commercial marketplace free from discrimination. The judge noted that the photographers now are compelled by law to compromise the very religious beliefs that inspire their lives and that he found that result sobering. Whilst for Justice Boston the photographers were free to think, to say, to believe as they wish and to pray to the God of their choice and follow those commandments in their personal lives wherever they lead, if they wish to conduct a public photography business, however, They had to compromise to accommodate the contrasting values of others. In simple terms, the judge did not merely find that the rights of the same-sex couple overrode the right of the photographers to freely exercise their religion. He struck down the very ability of the photographers to witness and act on their faith in their engagement with the world. Now, the cases I have focused on so far illustrate the conflicts that have arisen in the United States over religious conscience and same-sex marriage, which involved private citizens. But you may have also heard of the recent case of Kim Davis, a clerk from Kentucky who went to jail because she expressed a religious conscience objection against issuing marriage licences to same-sex couples licences she was expected to issue following the decision of the United States Supreme Court in Obergefell and Hodges, which upheld that in the United States same-sex marriage is a constitutional right. This case is a little different from the ones that I've mentioned in that it involved a public official in the exercise of public duties rather than a private citizen. Nevertheless, it illustrates the problems which have followed the United States Supreme Court decision to judicially impose same-sex marriage rather than allowing the matter to be handled by state legislatures through state law. It further illustrates the problems which arise when same-sex marriage is decided upon without complete thought and consideration being given to its impact on the religious liberty of individuals, whether they be private citizens or public officials. Now, in light of these cases, one might think that strange things happen in the United States and that these cases have no implications for us here in Australia. Haven't we been promised by the same-sex marriage lobby that religious freedoms will not be affected? This, however, is not the case. Whilst all of the draft same-sex marriage legislation which has been produced in Australia so far has included exemptions for churches so that members of the clergy would not be obliged to officiate at such ceremonies if to do so would be contrary to their religious beliefs, none have provided any conscience or... Or religious freedom protections for members of the general public, and according to Professor Michael Quinlan of the University of Notre Dame, unless exemptions are included, if same-sex marriage were enacted in any state or territory or federally in Australia, anti-discrimination legislation operating in those jurisdictions would almost certainly produce the same result as occurred in the examples from the United States that I have mentioned. Namely, that acting on one's belief as to what marriage truly is, being held to be in violation of law. So let me be clear. On the basis of this authority, should same-sex marriage legislation be passed into law by federal parliament without religious freedom protection for members of the general public, then any orthodox layperson involved in the marriage industry as a service provider of some kind who wishes to take a stand for their religious belief as to what marriage truly is and refuse to provide services in connection with the same-sex marriage is almost certainly likely to find himself or herself in breach of anti-discrimination law in this country. Do we accept such an outcome? Some might think that this is perhaps not such a large group of Orthodox Christians to worry about. Perhaps the religious freedom exemptions, both in any proposed same-sex marriage legislation and in our anti-discrimination laws, could be extended to cover this kind of fact scenario. There are, however, two problems with this kind of approach in Australia. The first is that there is significant resistance from various sources against extending religious exemptions from anti-discrimination laws. And these are some of the examples. I won't quote them all, but there are three slides with all of these bodies which have claimed that religious exemptions should not be granted from various anti-discrimination legislation or that it should not be extended. There's a few of them. The second problem with relying on religious exemptions in anti-discrimination legislation is that, as shown in the case that actually happened in your jurisdiction here, the Victorian Christian Youth Camps case, which concerned the refusal of a Christian youth camp to allow a booking to same-sex attracted youths and where the court held that such a refusal was unlawful discrimination, religious exemptions in anti-discrimination legislation are strictly and narrowly, and narrowly applied. For instance, in that case, Justice Hampel said in her opinion that freedom of religion is not a standalone right and may be trumped by the rights to equality and non-discrimination found in Section 8 of the Victorian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So even if exemptions are extended, they may not in effect cover all relevant scenarios in which our Church and its members may find themselves in when witnessing our faith in what marriage truly means. Moreover, Do we want to be embroiled in a constant legal fight to protect these religious exemptions? And who's going to fund the significant legal costs in defending such complaints? Now, I've spoken a great deal about how some same sex marriage legislation has been proposed without much thought to the religious freedoms of ordinary lay people. But what about our priests? Do the religious freedom protections which have been included for them in both proposed same-sex marriage legislation and in Australian anti-discrimination law sufficiently protect them in the exercise of their religious duties with respect to marriage and with respect to teaching of what marriage truly is? Also, what about our schools? Would they continue to be able to teach that marriage between a man and a woman is the union best able to found and nurture a family. Now, according to the Australian Christian Lobby, there are examples from overseas which suggest that the enactment of same-sex marriage legislation might prove to be the thin edge of the wedge which threatens the exercise of these religious freedoms in Australia. In England, for instance... Despite assurances of quadruple lock to ensure religious groups and churches would not be compelled to perform same-sex marriage, the Church of England was immediately taken to court when same-sex marriage was legislated in the UK. And in 2012, Denmark introduced laws compelling all churches in the state-established Evangelical Lutheran Church to conduct same-sex weddings. Individual priests are permitted to refuse to conduct the ceremony, but a replacement priest must be arranged by the local bishop. Again, are these simply strange overseas experiences that could never happen in Australia? According to Paul Kelly, the editor of The Australian, in an article dated 22 September 2012, Once the state authorises same-sex marriage, then religions will come under intense pressure to allow same-sex marriage and another campaign based on further application of marriage equality will begin. Looking at the passions of the same-sex marriage movement, can this be seriously doubted? At that point, the ideology of marriage equality runs into direct conflict with the idea of religious freedom and something we'll have to give. Will that be our freedom to witness, teach and generally practice our beliefs about marriage as Orthodox Christians in this, in this country? And to those who consider I may have perhaps overstated the risk, that as Orthodox Christians we may be called upon to give on this issue. Let me conclude um, with a recent example on this point concerning the distribution of a pastoral booklet entitled Don't Mess With Marriage by the Catholic Church amongst its faithful and schools in Tasmania. Immediately upon this booklet being distributed, Australian Marriage Equality claimed that the dissemination of the booklet triggered likely breaches of anti-discrimination legislation and, in fact, since that claim was made, a formal complaint has now been brought against the Catholic Archbishop of Hobart by Martin Delaney, a spokeswoman for the Tasmanian Gay and Lesbian Rights Group and the Greens candidate for the federal seat of Franklin, who is taking the Archbishop to the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Commission over the booklet such action has been taken even prior to the enactment of any same-sex marriage legislation. It is an indication, however, of what is likely to follow with even greater force should same-sex marriage become law in Australia. For these reasons, my view is that we need to engage actively and constructively in the debate and oppose any such move by the federal parliament.
0: Thank you, Mr. Augustinus. Our fourth presenter is Mrs. Helen Magnus, and her topic is the possible impact of the same-sex marriage legislation on education, with a focus on the same on the Safe Schools program.
4: Your Grace's, uh, Reverend Fathers, ladies and gentlemen, can I begin by saying uh, thank you for welcoming us uh, here to, today. And how much we look forward to addressing, we have looked forward to addressing this issue, this issue altogether, and to create this forum for discussion. I know you've been patient for some time, if you can be patient a little bit longer, and you'll get an opportunity to ask some questions and perhaps express some opinions. Some of us may say that I'm not concerned about same-sex marriage because it does not affect me. However, it will affect all of us because it will affect our children. It will have an impact on what is taught in schools and what is promoted and celebrated. Some of us may support same-sex marriage because we do not wish to discriminate and we see it in terms of equality. However, as the speakers have uh, outlined tonight and how I will be trying to do Uh, there is another perspective that needs to be considered. Nelson Mandela once said, education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world. It is through our schools that the process of changing children's thoughts and attitudes has already begun. Kevin Jennings, who had been instrumental in promoting gay rights throughout American schools, boasted once that he and others had been successful in framing their campaign in terms of safety and in that way no one can or will object to the homosexual and transgender indoctrination they plan to push in our schools. Tonight I will be speaking mainly about the impact of the Safe Schools Coalition Program. Some of you may be aware of it and some of you may not be. It is being introduced into our schools along the lines of the Jennings strategy. But before I continue, and I won't take very long, uh, please allow me to say some words in Greek, and you will be able to follow on the PowerPoint what I'm saying in Greek. And then I will continue with uh, some thoughts about the Safe School Coalition. The introduction of the Safe Schools Coalition in our schools is alarming. This program is different to existing programs and policies in our schools. At present, schools are guided by the Department of Education's National Safe Schools Framework, and they use anti-bullying programs which address all kinds of bullying. The Safe School Coalition program, however, is focused solely on homophobic bullying. It is funded by the federal government for $8 million And the Victorian government has added another two million to roll it out into every school in Victoria. Their strategy has been to convince the government, media, and the public that homophobic bullying is greater than all other kinds of bullying and can only be dealt with by affirming and normalising homosexual relations and by giving it a high priority on the school agenda. Studies, however, show that homophobic bullying does not rate among the top seven causes of bullying. If you speak to any teacher that you know, they will tell you that out in the playground and in the classroom, other kinds of bullying are more common. So, why does the government feel such an urgent need to spend $8 million on another anti bullying program? What message is being sent? To all the other children who are bullied, are they saying that their pain is not as important? Another concern with the Safe School Coalition is how it inappropriately sexualises the classroom. I invite everyone to look on to Google Safe School Coalition and to look at their website and to look at the resources. There is There are an abundance of stories and uh, testimonials from homosexual and lesbian teenagers designed to encourage students to come out about their sexuality, to explore and question their sexuality. Students are urged to be active in establishing student groups to organise Wear It Purple days and to display posters around the school and screen films like Gay By Babies. The aim of all this is to m- promote and normalise the homosexual lifestyle. As a result, many young people who are vulnerable may be led down a path that they will regret for the rest of their life. They may be led to believe that their adolescent attractions and fantasies are real, fixed, permanent and inescapable because the underlying message of the gay community is that they are born that way. Yet we know that many young people who say that they are homosexual as adolescents become heterosexual as adults. So why are our young people assaulted with these messages at such a vulnerable time in their development? The most alarming part of the program, however, is how it continually links young people into the Minus18 website. Again, I invite you to go onto Google and, um, and look at the resources and the booklets. One of the resources on this website lists seven ways for a young girl to bind her chest. A girl who feels trapped in a girl's body and wishes she was a boy may wish to go down the path of binding her chest in order to alleviate what is often called body dysphoria or gender dysphoria. Chest binding, however, has the potential to cause physical damage and serious harm. It also downplays sexually transmitted infections, by saying contracting STIs isn't the end of the world, it is just part of a life as a sexually active individual, it's not as terrible as you may have expected, and in fact it's not terrible at all. It also provides information as to how a child can bypass parental filters on their home computers to access the Minus18 website. Trans. Transgenderism has been given a high priority by the Minus 18 website. Schools are encouraged to accommodate the needs and requests of transgender children from primary school age. But we know that 70 to 80% of young children who express gender dysphoria as children grow out of it by puberty. So when parents and schools affirm this behaviour they may be guiding these young children down the path of hormone treatment and surgery which can have devastating psychological and physical consequences. In 20 or 30 years' time, many of these children may turn around and say to their parents and to their schools, why didn't you use your common sense and guide me better? Why didn't you use your wisdom as parents and adults and prevent this surgery? Another concerning aspect of the Safe School Coalition is how it leads to harassment and reverse bullying of students, staff and schools. One of the resources on the Safe School Coalition is how to kickstart the Safe School Coalition in your school. And this program instructs the school to create a register of homophobic bullying incidents and to conduct audits of the attitudes and opinions of staff and students. In other words, those who do not agree or have an opinion contrary to the Safe School Coalition will be reported, registered, audited and challenged. Is this the world of 1984? Is this the world of thought police where a different opinion is against the rules and policies of the school? The program has also led to other kinds of reverse bullying. In New South Wales, students at Burwood Girls High who did not sign a mural supporting same-sex marriage on Wear It Purple Day were bullied, as was a vice-captain at another school who refused to speak at an assembly in support of Pride Day or Purple Day. Our children should be able to express their opinions freely. They should be able to say to their teachers and in the classroom and to their friends, I think that marriage is a natural bond between a man and a woman without being shut down as a hate speaker. They should be able to express an opinion based on their religious beliefs without being accused of being homophobic. In essence, the Safe School Coalition program is less about bullying and more about spreading an ideology and promoting a radical sexual agenda. (laughs) Education in the hands of the Safe School Coalition will train teachers to be their most powerful tool to change the hearts and the minds of the very young so that they will view marriage, sexuality and gender identity in a different way than has been viewed, than has been viewed by the majority of people in society for thousands of years. Some of our children will be able to discern that they are being manipulated and make up their own mind. Others will simply trust what their teachers tell them at school and what the media portrays. Those who voice an opposing opinion will be harassed. Either way, our children will be under enormous pressure to conform. A lot of citizens, ordinary mums and dads, need to stand up and to speak up and to get involved. Education in Australia encourages the involvement of parents and the local community in the school. They recognise that the primary role of their child's education uh, is the family. Parents should feel free to visit school principals with other parents and make it clear how they feel about what their children are being taught and what programs the school is promoting. With same-sex marriage, the new culture of affirming homosexuality and celebrating homosexual and transgender relationships will become the norm and parents will have no say because it will be the law.
0: I'd like to thank all speakers um, for their presentations tonight. They were very um, illuminating, so thank you. Um, What I'd like to not ask but just to make a comment that um, in my view that this is all part of what I think is called um, social engineering... And I think that it's designed to place all Christians in a corner um as part of the uh um let's say the the way the world is uh, heading these days. So um uh I think it's unfortunate. I think also from um one would expect uh Muslims to also be opposed to this, but they're they uh, busy at the moment fighting off uh, ISIS and um Je- and other sorry other concerns. W- time is very limited. Do you have just to have a question, please? No, to that, a particular that's the only comment I wanted to make. Thank you.
4: Hello, this is my name's Mary. This is a legal question. If we allow same sex marriage between male and male and female and female, do you see any problems in the future in between allowing family members to marry, polygamy, and all that? I see this as the tip of the iceberg. Do you see any problems?
3: Yeah, it's an issue in the sense that what do we use as our legal criteria to identify what a marriage is? If we use just emotional love, as our legal definition and we allow that between two people and we use just emotional love as being the only legal criterion for determining what a marriage is and we don't look at the complementarity of the union between a man and a woman, the possibility of having children and don't factor those elements into the legal definition of marriage, then it does potentially open an issue. Then how about people who have an emotional love for more than one person? Uh, whether that can be made a part of a legal definition of marriage as well. Uh, See, that's the problem with just having emotional love as the legal criterion. And this whole debate does potentially raise that issue.
1: Based on the current uh, uh, majority US decision of the Supreme Court recently, uh, Oberfell and uh, Hodges, there is now a new case... Uh, lined up before the Supreme Court on the on the same legal principle, where a, a marriage construct of polygamy is lined up and claiming that that the legal principle applies to them as well. So it's not just a matter of sometimes uh, those who are in favour of man woman marriage get accused of the slippery slope argument, but we're now it's not a hypothetical anymore. Uh, the case is already lined up waiting to be heard and, as um, Nicholas mentioned, on the same legal principles.
3: Thank you. Um, my name's Daniel and I, I w- wanted to ask around the, uh, the notion of the inv-
1: inevitability of change to the marriage le- legislation, uh, that you know that what's commonly said, it's inevitable that this change will will take place and I was wondering, are there any examples of countries who have considered changing the, uh, the legislation from the traditional
3: definition and have, in fact, rejected uh, the change?
1: Well, firstly, I would not say that it's inevitable, uh, as many uh, conservative politicians say, that the only thing that's inevitable is death and taxes... Uh, but we have to be mindful that only 20 countries uh, around the world have accepted same-sex marriage out of several hundred. Um, secondly, that uh, the polls that show that the majority of Australians are in favour of same-sex marriage uh, make no reference to what portion of those polls include the ethnic community. Uh Thirdly, we should keep in mind that uh, in, a, in the US over 30 states had plebiscites or referendums on the issue and they all voted uh, against same-sex marriage and the recent Supreme Court decision overruled the democratic process in all those states. Uh, in Austria, it's been voted down by 110 to 30, and other countries as well. So, it most certainly is not inevitable. And uh, but the media would like us to think that it is inevitable. The media argued that we were going to, that the majority of Australians wanted a republic when we had the plebiscite. They were saying that 70 to 80 percent of Australians wanted a republic. Well, at the, at the actual uh, plebiscite, we got a referendum, we got a massive no. So, yes, I would say that it's not inevitable. Second, lastly, we should keep in mind that with a petition to the Senate, over 25,000 signatures within a few weeks only from the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese were collected. So there are concerns about the issue. Can I make one more comment? One more comment is that, and I should say this in his exclaimer, that as an Orthodox Church, we don't normally discuss these issues in public. We're not out to take revenge on anybody or to judge anyone. These issues are normally dealt with in pastoral care on a private basis. The only reason the Orthodox Church has come out public now is because we've been backed up into the corner with a legal threat to not be able to express our freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and to be able to live as Orthodox Christians in the public square rather than in our homes. That's a big difference to anything, any other ideas that the media or the public may have.
3: Uh, hi, uh, thank you for speaking
4: tonight. My is Stefano. I uh, just have a question about uh, the role of young people and how we play
0: uh, in today's society uh, around the definition of marriage and arguing um, our, our faith or uh, witnessing our faith in front of other people that are not of our faith. Uh, what's... Uh, not a question to anyone in particular, but what's the best way that... Um, we can uh, witness our faith and
4: uh, talk about our opinions and our beliefs regarding same sex marriage and the definition of marriage in our church uh, without, uh, I guess, reflecting poorly on our church as well. Uh, because we don't have really the best uh, publicity. I guess uh, there's a role for the clergy and a role for the people. So, uh, what's the best thing that we can do as young people?
3: It's a very good question. If I could speak first on that matter. Um... <laughs> It's the youth who are our toughest market on this issue. Um, It seems that is our most difficult challenge and I would think our most critical challenge. Um, I think youth have been enamoured with the idea of this discrimination argument that's been perpetuated by the same-sex marriage lobby. And if I could just briefly mention, there are a number of cases which have indicated that the non-passing of marriage for same-sex... Uh, isn't actually discrimination. There actually have been human rights cases in Europe and in other countries which have confirmed that isn't the case. So I think we've got a lot of work to do with our young people to get them to think that it's not just discrimination argument. Uh, Anything we can do within our own sphere of influence, I think, is critical with our young people to realise the beauty of their faith, uh, to realise the beauty of what's been handed down to us within our church. Um, and how radically different our society will come if this sort of legislation comes through. Um, and, and that really they've got a critical role to play that that doesn't happen and, and actually convince other young people uh, that not to follow this approach. Um, yeah, my, my name's
0: Steve. Um, thanks very much for all, all the um, information. It's been uh, really
1: enlightening. Um, look, I've got uh, one question that's been of concern. Regardless whatever your political um, affiliations might be, we've recently had a prime minister uh, change at the helm of the government in Canberra. I'm just wondering, to what extent do you think the um, gay lobby might have been responsible for inciting some uh, opposition to that? And uh, you know, that's, it, what will happen if there was a no vote? do we expect to have a political coup d'état, such, or in Canberra, or um, will, will we have a sort of a peaceful uh, um, conversation? And um, you know, uh, if it goes to a vote, I'm not sure that anyone in particular had a role with the change of prime minister. I don't have that type of gift to be able to say, but um, it seems that that change would have happened no matter what the public debate at the moment is in the public square. Um, So I don't think the gay lobby or anybody had that type of thing. And as far as um, our response is, we're only encouraging discussion. Nothing else. No public outcries or any other means, all we're asking is that the media present a balanced view, allow people to digest the consequences, allow people of faith to express their freedom of religion. And the democratic process can take its role uh, and and bring about whatever result it brings about. And whatever that result is, Christians and everyone in society in Australia should accept whatever the result is. But that does not mean that we cannot then live side by side and have a a mutual respect rather than uh, see what, for example, has happened in Canada where the uh, tribunals and the courts are being used as a a weapon to... um, basically eliminate uh, those who have a, an, an opposing opinion from expressing it in the public square without being prosecuted.
3: Hello, uh, my name is
0: Augustine. Thank you for, uh, to the speakers. My question is for Nicholas. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned earlier that the, if
2: this does pass... That the Orthodox Church, or if a priest refuses to carry out a service, a marriage ceremony, that the bishop is then charged with finding a priest at will. Well, in the Orthodox Church, that won't happen, is my understanding. So
1: what are the legal implications of of that?
3: Let me clarify. That example that I used was actually the one in Denmark, uh, which is the state-based church where they passed the legislation... Uh, and where that happened. Uh, So that was the Denmark example. It's a bit of a unique case, but it just goes to show, I think we do have in the draft laws that have been passed, so protections for our priests, to be able to conduct their services, to be able to refuse to do same-sex marriages. But once this gets passed, there's going to be a lot of pressure that's going to be applied to try and get that sort of moved. And I try to use the English example and the Denmark example to say this could potentially be the beginning of that sort of pressure being applied to our church to move on those issues. And we may actually have to defend these sorts of exemptions. And there's legal costs involved, there's other issues involved in doing that as well. It could embroil us in a real scenario. So let's head it off at the pass, let's just stop the legislation from being passed. Can
1: I just add something to that? in relation to the, the, the situation in Denmark, uh, does not apply to the churches that are not, not the state church. It only applies, applies to the state church, so not to the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church in Denmark. However, the issue with the exemptions are is that in the 2012 federal inquiry to the Senate, many bodies argued and submitted that there should be no exemptions for churches. And in the uh, federal inquiry um, in uh, 2012 that looked into the consolidation of anti-discrimination laws, we had an enormous body of legal, uh, legal bodies. For example, I can quote some of them to you. For example, legal aid in the state of Queensland in their submission said they argue that for the removal of any religious exemptions. Legal Aid in New South Wales submitted does not support the retention of any exemption on religious grounds. Public Interest Law clearing house of Victoria. In their submission, they said the consolidated law should include no exemptions for religious organisations in relation to the protected attributes of sexual orientation and gender identity. And uh, Discrimination Law Experts Group, we recommend that religious exemptions be repealed. The list goes on. There are pages of organisations who seem to have the view that there should be no exemptions. Uh, my name is James. James. I have a brief query for you. I haven't. Um, haven't the laws already been watered down for marriage within Australia? That is
3: not marriage specifically, um, but just generally to support uh, same-sex relationships, so that they have the same legal rights for property ownership for a number of legal aspects as any other mari- as as married couples. So that that's been introduced. They've also been given in certain jurisdictions uh rights for IVF and parenting, for adopting. But in terms of actual marriage as such, uh the ground still is that in this country, uh it's a matter for federal parliament of course, but it's between a man and a woman
1: so it is still between a man and a woman at this point in time at this point in it time it hasn't been taken out and made no, between not, two not, persons not in this country not no. in this
3: country yeah. we've had attempts for that to be done by various jurisdictions canberra tried it and other jurisdictions have thought about passing legislation on a state-based approach to introduce uh, same-sex marriage but it's been indicated as a high court case we said this is very much a federal issue So it's up to the federal government to decide. So until it gets passed by federal... And it's a matter for federal parliament. So until it gets passed by federal parliament, the definition we currently have in the Marriage Act still applies.
1: So what say do we get as people? Um,
3: Well, there's now it's opened up to debate uh, in that because of the claims that have been made, pressure by the uh, same-sex marriage lobby, that we have an amendment done to the definition and we've got the uh, plebiscite that's likely to be happening immediately after the next election. And then we will have an opportunity to speak speak our views as well.
1: My name is Christos, and
3: uh, I find that
1: uh, they've taken advantage of uh, a saying of there's no boundaries on love, Uh, and I find that hypocritical to to say that... uh, They're putting a a gag on free speech and that is limiting anybody saying what they think. I think it's absolutely wrong. What is your opinion on on free speech? Is Is that not being restricted?
3: It's a serious issue about the way the arguments have been presented and the ability of free speech... Uh, you may have heard of a group that's been formed to try and present an alternative view on this, why we should retain our understanding of marriage in the Act, that's the Marriage Alliance. Well, there was an attempt to get an advertisement put out on TV. Two television stations refused to run it. Channel 10 and Channel 7 in Sydney, when that attempt was done. And so a serious issue has been raised about freedom of speech. It's a very serious matter. Um, So, but uh, and I think we just have to keep on, uh, and I think it's been recognised as well by various sources, even by those supporters of same-sex marriage, that the other side of the debate hasn't yet been given a very good run. And now we have an opportunity to do that. Hi, my name is, my name is Simon. Um, in the interest of opening up public debate, um, the Catholic Church released their, their booklet um, Don't Mess With
1: Marriage. Does the uh, Greek Orthodox Church have a similar plan? As in a plan to issue a book? Yeah, a a Uh, public statement that can be critiqued in a public square. Oh yes, uh, His Eminence has distributed two statements up until now, uh, leading up to both uh, votes in Parliament in 2012 and uh, leading up to the uh, vote that was taken in August, uh, very clearly specifying the orthodox position. And there's also the website Speak Up for Marriage where there are a multitude of articles where you can read different uh, concerns and examples and opinions about the consequences uh, of this legislation in view of the fact that it's not including uh, exemptions and protection of certain rights. So there's quite a, bit of, quite a large amount of literature... Uh, been distributed, uh, and uh, there's plans for more as well.
2: Thank you. Um, Maria Maria. is my name. Sorry, Maria.
4: I just wanted to ask if there's been any attempt by the church as a whole, whether it be Orthodox or not, or any other body that have tried to um, intervene in the Safe uh, Schools campaign and to basically perhaps try to say that homosexuality is a minority and as such should they have the right to promote homosexuality so strongly in the schools and whether anything could be done to perhaps take them against um, an anti-discrimination board?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, There are certain movements in relation to that. Uh, The Australian Christian Lobby last week launched a website looking at the Safe School Coalition Program, highlighting some of the concerns. Uh, The Nationals... Uh, have called for an inquiry into the uh, program and um, there are one or two more groups that are also looking into it but which escape me at the moment. So it is becoming an issue. Uh, People are concerned at how could issues like what Mrs Magdus mentioned, asking a young girl, or giving a young lady directions on how to do chest binding... Uh, which is something which is, has even known to be lethal, how that should be taught in schools. So, yeah, there is a slight movement now, but we need to take more action. Parents need to find out if that's been taught in their schools, look at the resources on the Safe School website and write to their local Member of Parliament, state and federal, because it's been funded by the federal government, that education is an issue for the state government, expressing our concerns, and to to visit the principal and and raise concerns uh, with the school as well.